This episode of Wanderlust Off The Page is brought to you by Siwi, Europe's largest photo company with over 50 years of experience in photo services and online printing. Siwi delivers millions of personalised photo products each year, including the award-winning Siwi Photo Book. The brand has over 9,000 five-star reviews and can help you to relive your travel memories. As well as the photo book, you can create wall art, jigsaws, calendars and much more with Siwi. To learn more and to receive an exclusive 25% discount on all Siwi products when you spend £30, visit siwi.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. That's c-e-w-e.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. T's and C's apply. Now, let's get on with the show. everyone and welcome to the third series of the Wanderlust Off The Page podcast, taking you further into the stories of each issue of the magazine. We will be talking to travel experts, including your favourite travel writers. I'm Lynn Hughes, founding editor of Wanderlust. And I'm Rosie Fitzgerald, special features editor at Wanderlust. We'll be uncovering lesser-known places from all across the world, from the sounds of vibrant Louisiana in the USA to undiscovered parts of the Amazon rainforest and so much more in between. Now, if you're new to Wanderlust, here's what you need to know. Wanderlust is the UK's leading independent travel magazine, which has been taking the road less travel since 1993. We've won numerous awards along the way, and to this day, we continue to inspire our audience of curious travellers with each issue of our magazine, as well as our website. Both of these are bursting with off-the-beaten-track experiences at some of the world's most exciting destinations, both near and far. Responsible, conscious and sustainable travel is always at the very heart of everything that we cover. So do be sure to check us out by heading to wanderlustmagazine.com. Or become a Wanderlust Club member and join our community of serious travellers for just £35 a year. That's about 50 bucks. This will get you six beautiful collectible issues, exclusive member-only competitions and events, access to our entire online archive back to 2010, plus heaps of other benefits too. And of course, be sure to hit that subscribe button on the Wanderlust Off The Page podcast as well. Today's episode truly lives up to Wanderlust's mantra of taking you off the beaten path, and I just can't wait for you to hear this episode of a truly undiscovered part of the world. We hope you enjoy. On today's show, we will be transporting you to the real-life fairy tale as we follow in the footsteps of Bavaria's King Ludwig II. We will be hearing all about the story behind the scattering of spectacular castles and palaces that he built during his short life. It truly is a fascinating tale. And joining us to talk about it today is travel writer Andrew Eames. Now, Andrew is a big fan of Germany and he recently returned to the country to follow the trail left by Bavaria's most mysterious monarch. Joining Andrew today is fellow travel writer Aaron Miller, and together they'll be talking all about what made Andrew's time on the trail quite so special, and why it is a part of history that is well worth seeking out. So let's hear what they have to say. So once upon a time, there was a handsome king. To his subjects, he appeared tall and dignified, But at heart, he was a shy person who preferred to hide away in the fantasy palaces of his creation. 
There he would read his favourite poetry and listen to his favourite music deep into the night. Oftentimes he required his servants to cover their faces in his presence, and usually he liked to eat alone, occasionally sharing his meals with his favourite horse. Storybooks do love a dotty king, and this monarch was certainly that. Storybooks also love a happily ever after ending, which this story doesn't have. For one day, this king, having been declared insane by his government and put under house arrest, was found floating face down in shallow waters, in a baffling and not particularly storybook ending. Andrew, hello. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Wow, that is an intriguing introduction. I can't wait to hear more. It really does sound like something straight out of a storybook. And I'm not too familiar with this story either. Wonderful article, loved reading it. Fantastic imagery. Of course, the Bavarian castles are on so many people's bucket lists. How did you find out about the story of King Ludwig and what made you want to follow in his footsteps? So I tend to go to Germany a fair bit. I married a German, which kind of inevitably meant that I had to go and see the in-laws. And I used to go exploring from the north down to the south. It always seemed more glamorous in the south. They have mountains and much better weather. And being quite active, I love high-level walking. And I was up in the mountains of Bavaria some years ago, and I came across this wooden villa on the top of a hill you could call it a mountain, but it was actually 2,000 metres roughly, so roughly 6,000 feet amongst the much higher peaks in southern Bavaria. And it turned out to have been built by this king as a place where he could retreat to and enjoy the sublime loneliness of the mountains. And, you know, kind of expecting something which reflected the sublime loneliness of the mountains. I bought a ticket to go inside this property because it was obviously open to the public and there was a ticket sales booth. And it turned out to be like a Turkish sultan's palace inside. It was such a weird place to find such decor. This must have been quite a magical moment to stumble upon it, you know, just hiking in the mountains. (laughs) Yeah, because it looked so unreal. It it looked like it made out of balsa wood, that very light wood very light colored wood and had sort of slender legs supporting it. And I was there on a very still evening, just when the sun was coming out, it'd been a gloomy afternoon and the low sun just hit it. And so it just seemed so out of place. I could imagine it down on a lakeside somewhere in a very pastoral setting, but up in, in rugged mountains, it was very unreal presence. And it was, you know, you just had to go and see what was inside something like that. And he used to go up there And he used to dress as a sultan, and he used to get his courtiers to dress as, I guess, courtiers in a sultan's court, in a Turkish court. And he positioned them around the walls, and they would have to smoke hubble bubble and play cards as if they were in some sort of painting, a sort of living tableau. And this just struck me as being really weird behavior, particularly when everyone outside was walking around in hobnailed boots with rucksacks on their backs. It was such a contrast. And so I was instantly very curious about Ludwig II, particularly as it turned out he had been a king. And what on earth was he doing behaving like that in the mountains? Yeah, what you can get away with when you're the king, right? <laughs> Everyone in fancy dress the whole time. <laughs> yes, and now, yes. He was definitely a weird character. Yeah, it must have been quite fun in a way to have been one of those servants, a little bit different anyway. Okay, let's smoke the hooker pipes and get into character. <laughs> so... Tell me more, like, how did he become king? He was only 18, or was he 19? So he was a very young guy. He knew he was going to be king. 
but his dad was still very young and had died quite young. And so it was all a bit of a surprise. He wasn't really prepared for it. I think he'd never been particularly interested in ruling. So he just kind of thought, well, I'm going to retreat into my own world. <laughs> his dad had been a very, a very sort of strange, distant character. And his mum, I think, was not much better. His mum believed in starving her children which is a very weird way of bringing up kids. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask how he became so eccentric, but I think perhaps that, that says it all. She kept him hungry. He was about six foot two or three, so he was a pretty hungry lad, I imagine. But she believed it was better for the spirit and made a stronger character. Well, it certainly made a character. I don't know who knows about stronger. And that's a young age to inherit such power too. I mean, that's got to have played, played into that as well. He had always lived in a slightly fancy world. Um, when he was growing up, the palace that they mainly lived in, in the hills, which is very close to his most famous creation, which is Neuschwanstein Castle. When he was a kid, he, the bedroom that he slept in had oil lamps in the ceiling. And every night they were just hanging, there were just little protrusion glass oil lamps. And in the nighttime, his staff would go upstairs above his room and light all these little oil lamps. So there were like stars in the ceiling. Wow. So when you have a childhood which is like that, you're going to be a little, yeah, live in a fantasy world, really. Yeah, and then suddenly at 18, you can make your fantasy world a reality, yes. So tell me more about your adventure too, because, you know, you took a journey throughout Bavaria. What was the journey you took? So when I, yeah, I became interested in him, I'd, I'd been past his most famous castle several times in, in trips in Germany. Neuschwanstein, it's the supposed model for Sleeping Beauty's castle, although that's not proven. But that kind of gives an indication of what it looks like. And it's the castle that appears on the front cover of all the brochures about Germany or, and, and thousands and millions of postcards. And so it's kind of familiar to a lot of people. So I kind of knew that. And then I came across the villa in the mountains and thought, what a weird combination of two particular palaces or buildings created by this one guy. So I thought it was worth finding out a little bit more about him. And it turns out he'd created five of these properties, very unusual, wonderful fantasy palaces, castles. And so I thought it was worth checking at least a couple more of them out. So the next one I went to was Linderhof, which is in the Amagau Alps, which is not very far from the other two properties we've already talked about. He lived there the longest of any of his properties. He lived there for eight years, pretty much alone. And he built it very much to his own specifications. You wrote about this beautifully in the article, which everyone can read, of course, in the magazine or at wanderlust.co.uk. It's called In the Footsteps of the Fairy Tale King. I love that title. But if you could, maybe you could read a passage for us from that article now. Linderhof turned out to be a little jewel box of a Rococo palace set in a remote valley and dedicated to French King Louis XIV, the Sun King. Outside, it is cupped in landscape grounds that include an artificial lake constructed inside a fake cave, complete with a wave machine and an orchestra, so that Ludwig could be rocked in his boat while listening to music. Inside, I followed a guided tour through a riot of porcelain and gold leaf, where the most telling detail of Ludwig's state of mind was the dining room. Its table was designed for just one person, and ingeniously contrived so that it could be cranked up through the floor, fully laden, thus avoiding the need for any servants to be in the room with him. 
the more I hear about this guy, the more I, I like him. He's like the, the world's first eccentric celebrity that more money than sense and just can create his own wave machine to be rocked to sleep. I absolutely love that. It sounds like a fantastic place. I'm really curious to hear more. Could you share some more details about this Dotty King's fairy tale castle? His main room in the castle was his giant bedroom. I think he spent a lot of time in his bed. <laughs> the walls are completely covered in porcelain, a porcelain collection, and the huge glass windows in front of the bed with a artificial waterfall on the other side of the windows. So he would lie in bed and he'd just watch the waterfall. And I imagine he would be listening to Wagner because he was a massive fan of Wagner and a friend of Wagner and a patron of Wagner. And Wagner was quite dependent on Ludwig for cash. He came cap in hand several times, I think. So he lived out his fancy life inside this place. And inside, the interiors were partly a reflection of Louis XIV's decor of the Palace of Versailles. So there was a lot of gold leaf and some symbols that he borrowed from Versailles. And it was not particularly big, this castle. It clearly wasn't, well, it's a palace. It clearly wasn't built for entertaining. It was built primarily just for him. And this was his favourite castle. I mean, he had enough to choose from, right? You know, I mean, every self-respecting king should have at least four four insane palaces, right? But this was his favourite. Why do you think it was his favourite? He spent about eight years of his life living in this castle, and it was close to where his other big project was, which is Neuschwanstein, which we'll come on to. And he could get in his horse and carriage and travel for, I think it was about 14 or 15 kilometers to go and see how the building works were getting on. It's a very Catholic and very local part of, of Bavaria. And he was much liked in this part of the countryside. He was quite friendly. He was very distant when it came to anything to do with legal stuff and governing and Munich, he would avoid Munich like the plague. He never wanted to go to any social occasions or any official occasions. But when you met him as a peasant in the in the forest, he was quite charming. And he was so he was liked locally. So I think that's partly why he spent so much time in Linderhof. He felt the the warmth of people around him. Whereas if he went to Munich, which is where he had to be the king, they distrusted him, disliked him and thought he was fritting away all the state money, which of course he was, on these ridiculous palaces. Makes him quite endearing in a way, actually, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, he didn't want anything to do with the royals and the bureaucracy, but if he happens to meet a peasant on the road, then he's he's a nice guy. Then he would chat, yeah, he would talk to them about what was concerning yeah, them. Yeah, I respect him for that. So tell me more about this town, Oberammergau. It sounds like a fascinating place. Doberamagau is famous for being a really Catholic, a traditional village. And every 10 years, it has something called the Passion Play it hosts. And it has about 2,000 of the villagers and all their animals go on stage and do it. I think it's about an eight-hour performance broken into two halves of Christ's last days. Usually happens every 10 years. It's a really kind of a spectacular thing. And people come from all over the world to attend it. And actually... Ludwig went to it. But of course, when he goes anywhere, when he went anywhere, he insisted that he'd be the only one in the audience. So there's this auditorium for, I think, for 4,000 people with 2,000 people on the stage and just Ludwig sitting in the stalls <laughs> and everybody performing just for him. <laughs> 
I like this guy. I think we would have been friends uh, somehow, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he 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 loved this little part of the Amagai Alps and the Bavarian Alps. It's a town of woodcarvers, um, and it was a town basically of shepherds originally. But in the winter time, when the snows came and all the sheep and the cattle had to be brought indoors, the farmers and the labourers who used to look after, you know, were looking after the animals in the summertime, they would sit around the fire and carve wooden statues. So it's now a place where if you want a, a life-size carving of Jesus for your back garden, that's the place to go and buy it because there's shops with any manner of mainly religious sculptures. And all the houses have got frescoes on the outside, usually with either a farming or a religious theme. So it's a pretty heady place. So what you're saying is bring a big suitcase so you can fit that life-size statue of, of Jesus. Yeah, I mean, the the excess baggage charge on a life-size Jesus is going to be quite <laughs> high, I reckon. Well, there's some other interesting statues coming up and an absolutely beautiful castle too. Now, one of the best things about travel is that so often the memories you create last for a lifetime, don't they? And one of the best things about our sponsors, Siwi, is that they can help us to relive those special travel memories and keep them all in one place in a lovely photo book that you can look back on time and time again. Have you got any special travel memories, Lynn, that you like to return to? Oh, absolutely. I'm sitting here surrounded by photo albums showing all my travels from over the years, including a road trip through New Zealand from north to south, face-to-face encounters with gorillas in Central Africa. It really brings it all back to me. And particularly when you look back, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years later. And so actually, what are my resolutions for next year? I'm going to make photo books of some of the most memorable trips I've been on because it really does help you relive those experiences and memories, doesn't it? Yeah, it really, really does. And a good thing about Siwi Lynn, with a busy schedule like yours, it's really easy to use. You can put all those photos in really easily and and make it look exactly how you want to. So, yeah, definitely a great way to preserve those travel memories there. And, of course, a photo book makes a great present for a loved one as well. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. If you've got someone in your life that loves travel... You can get them calendars, you can get them photo books, all kinds of different creative gifts with Siwi. So whichever travel memories you would like to savour, whether it's a recent trip or your first ever adventure, a Siwi photo book makes for the perfect keepsake. Be sure to head over to their website and make the most of their exclusive offer and save 25% on all Siwi products when you spend £30. So for all the details and the T's and C's, go to siwi.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. That's C-E-W-E dot forward slash wanderlust. Right, now let's get back to the show. So after Oberammergau, you go on this incredible drive. It sounds beautiful. And then you stop at an even more incredible church. And we're going to hear about that right now. So the drive from Oberammergau to Füssen, the honeypot destination for Ludwig pilgrims, must be one of the prettiest in Europe. The road lollops around the Alpine foothills, stitching together villages and onion-domed churches against a tapestry of mountains. One of those churches is the famous Wieskirche, standing solitary in the meadows, built around an old wood carving of Christ on the cross, whose eyes had miraculously started to weep. 
The Wieskirche's interior is such a cream cake confection of marble and frescoes, of cherubim and seraphim, that I found it hard to pick out the original carving amongst all that gorgeousness. A cream cake confection of marble and frescoes. I love that line. You're a beautiful writer, Andrew. There's a really interesting and special statue there, straight out of a storybook as well. Uh, could you tell us about that? So this is this the Wieskirche, which is this church right in the middle of the fields. Wiesent Meadows, actually. That's why it's sort of the Meadows Church. And actually, there are several churches in this part of Bavaria, right in the middle of the fields, usually because there was some miracle or something else happened there. And the miracle in this case was this little wooden statue of Christ that started weeping, tears coming out of his eyes and running down his cheeks. And the locals thought this was you know, something truly spiritually magnificent. So they started to build a church around it. And it's now the centerpiece of this church. But the church is so gloriously decorated now that the little wooden statue is just completely overwhelmed by all the the pretty and the cherubs and the seraphims and the gold leaf and the Rococo work. As I said in the piece, it's a cream cake interior. <laughs> I love that. I love that description. And I'm intrigued by this drive too. What makes it one of the prettiest in Europe? And could you describe it for us? The foothills of the Alps in Germany, they just look as if they've been kind of manicured. <laughs> I guess it's the German sense of order. Uh, you've got these really wild and quite savage peaks behind, but all the grasslands, the, the pasture lands, it's just very well maintained. And it looks like it's been groomed, really. You can almost see the comb marks on the, on the, on the grasslands. And also, they don't have, tend to have fences and hedges. So it's kind of unbroken rollingness. It just looks very sumptuous. It's a sort of land of milk and honey and Germany's next top heifer competitions. <laughs> <laughs> they got some pretty heifers. Well, there's some very there. pretty heifers, yes. And, and of course, there's crucifixes on most of the hilltops as well. So you mentioned you're a, you know, you're a mountain man. You love being up in the high country. Could you recommend any hikes or any particular areas that people should check out while they're there? Well, anywhere behind Garmisch Partenkirchen, there's, I mean, you can get up into the hills because there's a cable car that will get you up. And then there are two or three routes around up there. So Schachen, S-C-H-A-C-H-E-N, is where the villa is, the king's house. And there is a hut that you can stay in right pretty much, not directly next door to the villa, to the king's house, but very nearby. And so Garmisch-Partenkirchen to, to Schachen is a good start. That would be a good one to start with. And for the castle itself, for Neuschwanstein, you actually had to hike to get there too a little bit, didn't you? Yeah, so Neuschwanstein, you can picture this Sleeping Beauties type castle on top of a hill. It's really a piece of scenery. It's a piece of visionary scenery. And its position must have made it a nightmare to build because it's kind of on the top of a tall rock. So God knows how they did that. And it's so to reach it, you have to either walk up or you can get there's a horse and cart that will take you up but it's probably a 25, 20 minute walk up, which is great because it kind of, there's a slow reveal that happens as you get higher and higher and you get to see the landscape below. And it's a nice way of getting in the mood. So yeah, you have to work to go there, but it is one of the biggest attractions in Germany. And you also have to buy a time ticket and you can only go in it on a guided tour. You can't go in and wander around. So 
you buy a time ticket to go in with a tour, and the tour is only going to last you about 20 minutes so they can get people through. And that's partly because of the, I think it's 110 rooms that are inside the castle, only 16 of them were actually finished. So there's not a lot inside to see, in fact. So they get people through this small amount of interior and then they get the next lot through. So it's definitely worth doing, but don't go expecting to see some of the glorious stuff that you would, if you want to see what he really liked to have around him, then Linderhof, the one we were just talking about, is the place, not Neuschwanstein. Neuschwanstein is great to see from the outside. And if you're there, you should definitely go inside, but don't expect glorious interiors. He slept in Neuschwanstein for... 172 nights, which is nothing compared to where he was in Lindahoff. And his bed there has got, the ceiling has got carvings of all the cathedrals of the world. He was a very Catholic character, although he was gay. And he struggled with the conflict between his faith and his instinct, his inclination. And so when he was a child, he had all these little stars in the ceiling. When he was a, an adult, he had cathedrals carved into his ceiling to try and keep him on the right track, I think, probably. <laughs> so he didn't stray. He saw himself as a sort of grail knight out of the, out of the history stories. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised. Yeah, well, I mean, if, if you're going to build castles like that, you might as well be straight out of you know, the, a grail knight as well and myths and legends. It was his vision of a medieval knight's castle, Neuschwanstein, but it also had flushing toilets which would have been really unusual in those days, of course. Just cutting edge, yeah. Just cutting edge at that time. So not much of a medieval knight's castle in terms of <laughs> facilities. <laughs> yeah, you can't. Unfortunately, Lancelot didn't have it so good, right? But And, you know, it's become one of the most, if not the most iconic castle in the world. The architecture is beautiful. I mean, like you said, Disney adapted it, for goodness sake. But he was the man that came up with it. So talk to me about the inspiration of that architecture. It was, it was truly inspired, wasn't it? Yes. Well, if you come down through an area of Germany, they call it the Romantic Road now. There's, there's lots of very pretty little hilltop towns with conical towers and guard houses and all sorts of stuff that you see actually now in a lot of backdrops for Disney because actually Disney's artists did go to some of these other places like Rothenburg and sort of a town called there. Anyway, there's two or three of them along what they call the Romantic Road. And so when you go there, you realize that he, he wasn't doing something completely new. He was taking a synthesis of what already existed in those medieval towns and creating a sort of pastiche, really, out of what was already there as samples of architecture. So... We're kind of coming to the end of this fairy tale of the Dotty King. But as you mentioned in the first passage that you read for us, it didn't end like a fairy tale. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? No. So he continued to spend money on these crazy palaces. And some of the money was his family money, but some of it was you know, the government money, the, the coffers of the state. And he increasingly aggravated the other ministers of state. And they started mumbling, and then eventually they decided something needed to be done. And so they tried to get a psychiatrist to section him effectively, which he resisted. And then they managed to persuade somebody who'd never actually encountered him to sign a document. And they basically ambushed him one night when he was in Neuschwanstein 
and took him away and incarcerated him in another family property, the Wittelsbach family, which is his dynasty, had a little castle, Pied-à-Terre, on the side of a lake just south of Munich called Lake Starnberg. And they basically kept him under house arrest in this castle. He was pretty unhappy, obviously, with the whole situation. And he had a psychiatrist who was allocated to him to be kind of his carer or his guard, who knows. And they used to go for walks along the shore of the lake usually with a couple of staff in attendance in the background to make sure nothing went wrong. But this one particular night, a wild and stormy night, he said to his psychiatrist doctor, let's go for a walk and the other guys can stay behind, that we don't need them to come out on the wild and stormy night. And then they didn't reappear, the two men, and eventually they were found the following morning, floating in the shallows of the lake, dead. And in the autopsy, because there was apparently an autopsy, or I don't know really whether we had the full details of the autopsy, apparently he didn't have any water in his lungs, the king, so he hadn't drowned, which is a mysterious thing, but it was also just very shallow water and he was known to be a strong swimmer. But the psychiatrist attendant of his had been strangled. So it's all very mysterious and it was officially declared a suicide, but it doesn't really sound like a suicide. That doesn't really ring true. And the irony is, of course, is he was, you know, assassinated, or we can assume so to some extent, because of this kind of frivolity and this huge waste of money. But of course, this has become one of the biggest earners of the entire region. Absolutely. All his profligacy at the time was hugely criticized. And that's presumably why he met his end. But today, what he created is a major draw, a huge part of the tourism economy of that part of Germany. What he created has been very, very good for Southern Bavaria, that's for sure. So top tips for Wanderlust readers who are going to be no doubt inspired to do this trip. When should they do it? How long should they take? Where should they stay? What is your advice? Well, I think they should definitely go to Oberammergau because that in itself is a very distinctive place and Linderhof. There is another big castle. It's called Heron Chiemsee, which is on an island on Lake Chiemsee. It's a little bit far out. If you're a Ludwig pilgrim and you want to see every castle, then yes, go there. It is very grand, but it's just a little bit far away from these other three. So if you're a little bit industrious and and a hiker, then you can get up to Schacken, the king's house, the villa in the hills, in just that you can do that as a day trip. You can do it and stay overnight in the hut next door to make it a little bit more interesting. And it's great being up in the mountains in the evening time. So that I would definitely say you should do. Stay in Oberammergau and stay in Fussen to see a little bit how the other half works. You can see how big the industry is, of a tourism industry the palaces have created. There is this other palace, which is kind of at the foothills, at the foot of Neuschwanstein, which is Hohenschwangau, which is where he grew up, his father's creation, with the stars in the ceiling of his bedroom. That's just right next door to Neuschwanstein. So you can do both of those quite easily in a day. Well, it's been so wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for telling us this wonderful fairy tale and for making this beautiful region come to life for us. Where can people read more of your work? I absolutely love your writing and I'm sure other people will too. So yes, I have a website called Germany is Wunderbar. <laughs> I love it. Germany is Wunderbar.com where there's some stuff. And I have my own website, andrewemes.com, which has links to some of the books, because I also write occasional books. 
Well, I highly recommend that. Thank you again, Andrew. It's been lovely to meet you and so great to hear this story. And I urge everyone to go to wanderlust.co.uk or check out the magazine because there are some beautiful photos in there. Andrew's writing is absolutely gorgeous and it's a wonderful story. So do go there and check that out. Thank you again, Andrew. It's been great to meet you and great to chat with you. My pleasure. Well, that just about wraps up our time here today. Thank you all so much for listening. Please remember to hit that follow button and subscribe wherever you get your shows. Make sure you come back for more. We've got plenty more incredible travel stories coming up and we just can't wait to share them with you. Yeah, thanks again. We'll see you next time. This episode of Wanderlust Off The Page is brought to you by Siwi, Europe's largest photo company with over 50 years of experience in photo services and online printing. Siwi delivers millions of personalised photo products each year, including the award-winning Siwi Photo Book. The brand has over 900 five-star reviews and can help you to relive your travel memories. As well as a photo book, you can create wall art, jigsaws, calendars and so much more with Siwi. So to learn more and to receive an exclusive 25% discount on all Siwi products when you spend £30, visit siwi.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. That's c-e-w-e.co.uk forward slash wanderlust. T's and C's apply. Wanderlust Off The Page was presented by Lynn Hughes and Rosie Fitzgerald. The interviewer was Aaron Miller and the show was produced by Armchair Productions, the audio experts for the travel industry. 